It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, COVID-19 vaccines versus the bottom line. I am not a scientist. Repeat, I am not a scientist, but I am a user of COVID-19 vaccines. I think they're miracles, and the single biggest reason the pandemic wasn't more devastating. But if that perspective makes you erupt, please relax. I'm focusing today on the companies that produce the vaccines, not the science. And I have a question. Have those amazing innovators, those lifesavers, played fairly when it comes to sharing the financial spoils of their miracle drugs? And they were miracles. Just about nine months after the U.S. went into lockdown in March 2020, the first vaccine jabs were available. There are a handful of marquee companies that won that race. Pfizer, BioNTech, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca among them. But today, for purposes of a lively discussion about innovation and avarice, I want to focus on Moderna. It will help keep our conversation on point, and Moderna is a useful proxy for examining how a groundbreaking vaccine was unearthed and who got control of its uses. And to do that, I've invited Dr. Monica Gandhi, a leading virologist and epidemiologist who also teaches at the University of California, San Francisco, to join our podcast. Hi, Monica. Hi, thank you. It's great to see you and to talk to you. So first, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. How did you end up devoting your career to battling some of nature's most dangerous stalkers, viruses? You know, actually... My entire interest in viruses came about when I was quite young. I was only 12, but it was when the HIV epidemic was first reported. And I got fascinated by the That's idea. like the mid-80s or so? Yeah, it was 1981, June 5th, 1981, to be exact, were the first case reports of these devastating infections in usually young men who have sex with men. It was out of the blue. It felt horrible. And what struck me even at that young age is that viruses are other. Bacteria are others. Fungi are others. Parasites are others. There's us as humans, and then there's pathogens that attack us. And when you say others, you mean like intruders? Exactly. Intruders that come from the outside and really have nothing to do with us. And we have strategies, or at least have developed strategies, over the years of technologic advances to fight the other. But go back on what the hook was for you. You said, you know, you described them as outsiders or invaders. Do you see yourself as sort of a detective? Yeah, I like that idea. I think scientists are detectives because, by the way, we're going to be getting more viruses and, and the planet is changing. And But it is sort of detective work. 
And then it's this idea of optimism. And I think that's what appealed to me at the age of only 12, is that it's optimistic to think that we have the technologic tools and we can develop them if we work hard enough to fight all these pathogens coming our way. And I was amazed by the optimism of infectious disease. I really have to tell you that if you meet any infectious disease doctor, they have a sense of optimism. We're going to get this. We're going to fight it. We're going to figure out how to combat it. And that's what happened with so many viruses. That's not a bad way to live. That's it is. not it's a bad a very, way for you to live, right? It's a very positive way. Enjoying solving mysteries and feeling hopeful about the outcome. Hopeful. Exactly right. Well, so let's talk a little bit about Moderna. It's a pretty spectacular company, right? Can you talk a little bit about its history, if you would, and the development of mRNA vaccines? Yes. So just to be clear, mRNA vaccines, by the way, it's not like they're brand new. You know, a lot of people say, oh, there was no such thing as mRNA vaccine technology. Actually, remember, we've had three major coronaviruses come out and cause severe disease in the last 20 years. The first one, was the SARS pandemic, 2002-2003. The second one was MERS. All these are coronaviruses. And that was the time with MERS that the mRNA technology was pulled out. It was already an idea developing that you take, instead of part of a virus, because we all got diphtheria vaccine, tetanus vaccine, pertussis vaccine. And you know what we got? We got a piece of the protein of the virus put together with something called an adjuvant, and that made us raise an immune response. But the mRNA technology is to give the recipe for that piece of protein, not the protein itself, but the recipe book for you, the human body, to make up the protein in higher levels so that you raise a really vigorous and importantly, a strong immune response. mRNA goes away, the protein goes away, but you have that immune response to live with. And so this was a technology that really started way before this pandemic in the MERS pandemic, but we didn't need it because MERS sort of dwindled out. I mean, we sort of got lucky escaping SARS and MERS, right? We're fortunate to a certain extent that SARS and MERS didn't become what COVID-19 became. Yes. I mean, it's really an interesting question. I mean, they didn't spread in the same degree before you had symptoms. So you knew, you know, when you had SARS and then you could isolate those individuals. And then fundamentally, actually, they did make people very sick and very unfortunately. And so we could, again, isolate and they just sort of dwindled. Both of them went away without the need for vaccines. But COVID-19, we were never going to get away with that. And so in the wake of SARS, this little company that calls itself, I think, originally modified RNA, and then they shortened that into Moderna, opens its doors up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Exactly. Not a new technology. This Moderna company started in 2010. So, you know, remember that. Like, it wasn't that this is some brand new technology. We wanted it to have a company that would be focused for the next pandemic. As SARS went away on its own, MERS went away on its own. The idea was if we ever had a pandemic, Moderna and other companies like this would lie waiting with this novel technology. And Moderna was doing cool things and has done cool things. How was it looked upon or received within the both the research community, the public health community, the greater kind of commercial pharmaceutical community? What did people think of Moderna in its early days? It was looked on very favorably because it was this little company that could and it was just really trying to work on, for example, cancer vaccines, 
human metanumavirus, thinking about using this for influenza, for RSV, for all these other viruses that we've been having and don't have a vaccine yet. But to be honest, it, it wasn't very well known. And it, it was sort of chugging along and chugging along. And then reality turned it into a star. In the broader idea of innovation in the pharmaceutical world, I mean, how hard is it to authentically innovate, to really produce knockout revolutionary drugs? Actually, this is a great question because in the history of vaccinology, we have these kind of basic ideas, right? Like smallpox was the first vaccine that was thought about. And what they did, Edward Jenner, was take another virus that looked like smallpox, vaccinia, and also cowpox, these are cousins of smallpox, they're also cousins of monkeypox, by the way, and put a little bit of that into humans, put a little bit of a related virus into humans. So that was the first vaccine technology. And then when we went around in time, it was like, wait, I don't want to give you a live vaccine, you know, from a, even a cousin. I don't want you to get that cousin. So let's think about putting pieces of the virus, innocent pieces of the virus, not the whole virus, innocent pieces of the virus linked together with an adjuvant, or we'll give you the whole virus, but we're going to kill it. We're going to inactivate it, or we're going to at least make it very weak. And these were all the viral technologies we had. The idea that Moderna, who started in 2010 and was working on mRNA technology, 2017, and then the knockout in 2020, the idea that we'd have this totally novel vaccine technology for our next pandemic was amazing because the vaccines that we have work well, but we needed a vaccine that worked really well. This is a worldwide pandemic. And we should, I think, probably be grateful about that level of high quality innovation that exists within the biotechnology and the pharmaceutical community. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And and it, it's rare, it's really rare to get one of these drugs that's like a grand slam. A lot of money gets poured in, a lot of research gets poured in, but there can be misfires, right? Yeah. And actually, to be very fair on what you said, I should say that I've been in academia all my life. I'm an NIH-funded researcher, and I know the NIH very well, and I know universities very well. But really, for knockout products like this, we do need to work with our biotechnology and pharmaceutical industry colleagues, really to make immunotherapy for cancer, to make cancer vaccines, to make mRNA vaccines. We need a company that has the innovation and also the funding in it and the production capacity to make products at scale. So this is a major link that we have between academia and industry, our novel drugs, and we need them. And, and there's a third link, isn't there? The federal government and the deep, deep pockets of Uncle Sam, because the trajectories of these drugs are so long, the risk in whether they'll even come to market is so high, and the cost is so exorbitant that when companies can, a partnership with the federal government is often very useful, right? Yes, and it's a great question that you ask because it's not just the NIH that would maybe, say, fund a research innovation, but it's the FDA that helps work with companies to say, really, if you're going to produce this, we're going to help work with you and we're going to get it out quickly. We're going to approve it more quickly. And it's also, it was very unprecedented, but Operation Warp Speed in the setting of SARS-CoV-2 was really the federal government saying, okay, look, we have a novel virus. Life has, you know, ground to a standstill worldwide. We need to get out of vaccine quickly and we're going to take independent funding and invest in a private public partnership. 
And that was innovative. We have to give credit to Operation Warp Speed. And Moderna was a direct beneficiary of that, that the head of Operation Warp Speed had been on Moderna's board. Moderna got, I think, around $10 billion in federal funding to help it do R&D around mRNA. And I think it had a partnership with the federal government that lasted for at least, I think, four years prior to bringing their vaccine to market. How do you see Moderna's role during the early stages of the pandemic when you think about the importance of Moderna as an entity at that time? You know, I see Moderna as extremely important at the in the early phases of the pandemic because everyone was rushing to make a vaccine, but there were sort of eyes on Moderna because in 2017, Moderna had developed a prototype of an mRNA vaccine for different viruses, including human metanumavirus, which causes a sort of a respiratory viral syndrome every winter in people. And so there had been an immediate look at this novel technology of Moderna. To be fair, and I'm sure that people know this history, but the Vaccine Research Center, like you said, the federal government had already funded Moderna and been involved in Moderna. So Barney Graham, as the lead scientist at the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH, had been involved in the mRNA technology, really helped co-develop it. So it wasn't just a financial relationship, it was also a research and development relationship. Definitely, definitely a scientific relationship because Barney Graham had already written a paper just the year before in Nature magazine that said, if we ever have a pandemic, we have to have the vaccine as fast as possible using novel technologies, which was obvious. I mean, he's reflecting what we're all thinking is that if we get a pandemic, unlike 1918, influenza, where there was no vaccine, it went away because unfortunately, a lot of people died of the virus. It went away on its own. 1942 was the first influenza vaccine ever developed. So it didn't go away through technology. And so we knew from 1918 that this time we couldn't let it go away through natural immunity and through more mortality. We needed to help quell the mortality through vaccine technology. Monica, I want to ask you more about the partnership between Moderna and the government. But let's take a quick break from a word from one of our sponsors, and we'll jump into some of the patent battles when we return. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, so Dr. Monica Gandhi and I were just talking about the relationship between the federal government and pharmaceutical companies and the federal government and Moderna specifically as being one of those useful private-public partnerships that helps bring things to market more quickly and ideally with better outcomes. And Moderna is sort of a poster child for an outcome like that, isn't it, Monica? Yes, because close ties between the NIH and Moderna already had developed a novel technology with the help of the NIH and the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH with Barney Graham. And it was almost poised to be the company that brought us the vaccine for COVID. Do you recall where you were or how you heard about the idea that there was going to be a popularly available vaccine that could knock COVID-19 off of its heels? 
Oh, I remember very well. <laughs> because even though December 11th, 2020 was the first EUA for the vaccine in the United States, that was through Pfizer, November 9th was the first time that we got the results from Pfizer. And November 16th was the first day that we got the results from Moderna. This is 2020. I was thrilled. The results were profound. Just this incredible level of protection against symptomatic COVID with both of these mRNA vaccine products. A lot of talking to the press around that time, just I was sort of really very excited and very thrilled. I just couldn't believe it was so fast. November 9th after March 11th, 2020, that's less than nine months. It's amazing. Eight months ago, we got the results. Nine months, we got the product. Yeah. When people used to talk about drug development taking years, right? Exactly. I just, I couldn't believe it. I felt like it was a day, like going back to my history and why I was so interested in virology, where everything was full of hope. Everything turned around. It was that optimism. And we got it. That's all I cared about. Well, and you know, you mentioned the influenza epidemic of a century before and how they just basically waited it out and had to let the bodies pile up because they lacked the science, they lacked the innovation then to be able to combat it. And that is a hallmark of progress in our era, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, I have also, because I'm really interested in infectious disease, I've really read a lot about the history of infectious disease. Prior to the development of new technologies, we had to wait everything out. And we waited it out through misery and through death and suffering. And the same was true of HIV at the beginning of the pandemic, before we got the novel antiretroviral therapies. It was terrible, but we didn't have that technology. And I don't know about other industries. I'm sure this, this, people think the same thing in energy and other things. But I knew that we can never have another pandemic again where we didn't have technology waiting in the woods to essentially control it. Otherwise, the death and suffering would have been much, much more. We have had almost 7 million deaths from COVID-19 worldwide. That is unacceptable, but it is so much less than we would have had. You know, there was this very spirited debate around a lot of the different drugs and vaccines that came onto the market during the early days of COVID around whether or not they were priced fairly and whether or not everyone had the access to those drugs that needed them. And it sort of became this interesting discussion about both innovation and I think miracles and avarice and overreach. And justice. Yeah. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how you think about that around any of the big pharma companies or the small innovators. Well, this is a great question because I'm really a student of HIV history in the sense that I grew up thinking about HIV a lot. And when you look at the history of HIV, there were incredible innovations in HIV, which were really the antiviral therapeutics that were developed and disseminated in the U.S. and Europe by 1996. In the meantime, HIV was raging in sub-Saharan Africa and India and Eastern Europe and other places that actually didn't have access to these medications. And it became a global and very visible fight and advocacy from the HIV community, from scientists, from clinicians, from researchers, from patients that said, wait, how can we save the lives of only one group of people when we have novel technology and not the save the lives of a whole other group of people because they live in lower income nations. And the 2000 International AIDS meeting, which was in Durban, South Africa, it was just 
fiery and it was all protest. It was people from the U.S. and Europe saying, I'm not taking these medications until my brothers in South Africa can get these medications. It was very, very vocal and very visible. We were horrified that the innovations would not be given to low-income nations. Well, generally, how do the drug companies respond to protests like this or criticism of them about the availability and access to their drugs? So sometimes they (laughs) ignore the communities and then sometimes they're very responsive. So what happened is in the year 2000, when the International AIDS meeting was drowned out by the dinner protest, really what happened is that Pfizer at the time was making a very cheap medication called fluconazole, which would combat cryptococcal meningitis, which is a very high mortality opportunistic infection in AIDS. And they made a billion dollars in the year 2000 from fluconazole. And it just seemed unconsciousable that we'd have this very cheap drug that should be could be made by generic companies and marketed to the rest of the planet. And Pfizer was making that much money. And they did respond. And there was a process that occurred through the World Trade Organization, the WTO, called the TRIPS waiver. And what the WTO meant at the time is that if we're in the middle of a massive global health emergency, patents may not matter to the same degree as they would. And we may have to waive those patents through the TRIPS waiver to allow companies in South Africa and India and in kind of middle resource nations to get the formula and to make these medications more cheaply and to give them out to low-income resource nations. And that really occurred as a result of HIV inequity. You bring up patents, which is another sort of leg of the stool in watching, I think, how pharmaceutical companies protect their research, protect their products, but also protect their bottom line. You know, there's a lot of patent battles that occur in the pharmaceutical world. Patent trolling is a big thing in big pharma. Talk a little bit about that. How much of the patent battles are over really legitimate claims to intellectual property, and how many of them are anti-competitive or are simply used to sort of protect something that might have a more generic use? So to be fair, the reason that patents came about, obviously, is that the company would say, you know, we need to make money off of our products because we put in a lot of research and development into our product and that costs money. money. In this case, of course, Operation Warp Speed had invested $10 billion from the U.S. federal government into the Moderna vaccine. But under more normal circumstances where we're not in the middle of a global health emergency, usually it is the company itself that's come up with that money. And the point of protecting patents is to say we need to spend some time until the medication naturally becomes generic, because after a certain amount of time, every medication is allowed to be made by generic manufacturers. The companies would say, it's a, we need this patent to protect our profit. And I do understand that, again, under normal circumstances, but these aren't normal circumstances. Well, in, in Moderna, there's even an extra little twist in all of it, because What did it do after it engaged in this sort of mutually effective and profitable partnership with the federal government to develop a vaccine, bring it to market, and start to reap the financial gains of that, including a skyrocketing stock price? It began to threaten the federal government with a lawsuit. It said it was going to take the government to court under the claim that it had sole rights to the patents around its COVID-19 vaccine, right? 
Right. So that was a very surprising day because not only had the government invested from Operation Warp Speed into Moderna, not only had the government through the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH helped contribute to the technology scientifically with Dr. Graham and his research associates, but finally the government had actually agreed to give Moderna and Pfizer the money and pay for the COVID vaccines because we're in the middle of a global health emergency and a U.S public health emergency. So instead of people having to get this through their insurance, we made this vaccine widely available in pharmacies for everyone, whether they have insurance or not, undocumented immigrants, doesn't matter. You can go and get it at a pharmacy. But how can you go and get it at a pharmacy? Because the government purchased these vaccines from Moderna. So to me, I was shocked because it seemed like Moderna had had plenty of investment from the federal government. And I mean, the whole idea of the intellectual property from Dr. Graham was ignored and they sued the federal government. And I will just tell you, as someone who's NIH funded, I would be on calls and people at the NIH were very frustrated and shocked. Well, Moderna ultimately backed away from those legal threats. But they, you know, they also had interesting arguments. You know, when Moderna would be sued, they would argue on occasion that the federal government had to defend the lawsuit because it was the federal government's product. But when it came to this patent battle, they wanted to claim it as their own. Doesn't seem like they can have it both ways, though, there, you know, yeah. Right, and I think Moderna's also sued Pfizer and BioNTech for patent infringement, and Moderna itself has been sued by other competitors. It becomes this big tangle of patent battles that can often obscure, you know, what people want out of the drugs themselves and how to bring them to market effectively. Yes, I think it makes the companies look really greedy, like you said, because actually both Moderna and Pfizer have made a lot of money during the pandemic. And it makes them look like they're not responding to equity concerns about how we give these vaccines to low-income countries. And it just, it's not like we're not going to use these products, but it did, frankly, leave a lot of people in the scientific community cold. Okay, I think we should take one more break here. And um, when we get back, I want to talk about the effect that Moderna's overreach has had on bringing vaccines to the rest of the world. And that'll come up after these ads. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. We're back with Dr. Monica Gandhi, who, by the way, you can pre-order her new book, Endemic, a post-pandemic playbook. It'll be published this summer. I will be an eager reader, as I'm sure many other people will be. Monica, we were talking just before the break about these internecine patent battles in the U.S. and Western Europe, primarily, I guess, some parts of Asia, over control of, of vaccines. But what do those sort of battles ultimately mean for low-income to moderate-income countries, primarily those in the Southern Hemisphere, where they lack the public health infrastructure and the private-public partnerships to deliver these kind of drugs to their own citizens? What do these battles mean for them? So it means that, you know, residents of those nations lose out and it's really unfair. So to just clearly lay this out, India and South Africa 
had not really suffered from COVID that much by October of 2020 because we still hadn't gotten into the new variants, essentially. But there was an anticipation that we would have new variants. We'd already had one called D614G. And so they were smart enough to say, well, just because we've been relatively spared so far, it's not like we're not going to need these vaccines. We see the writing on the wall. You're developing these vaccines. And they wrote a letter. India and South Africa wrote a letter to the World Trade Organization in October 2020 saying something bad could happen. We could get a new variant. It's not like we're going to get through this without vaccines. And please invoke the TRIPS waiver to ask Moderna and Pfizer, who are developing these vaccines, and we got the data just a month later, to waive the patent so that we can make these mRNA vaccines in our nations. And why is it India and South Africa? Because they basically have the ability to make these vaccines. They're kind of middle resource countries. They have already shown that they can make antiretroviral therapies and other medications. They had the technical capability. They said, please invoke the TRIPS waiver to the WTO so that we can make the vaccines as soon as they're ready. WTO said no. And in the meantime, we had an election and Moderna and Pfizer wrote a letter to President Biden as soon as he was elected and said, you know that letter from India and South Africa? That's a really bad idea. Don't do it. And so unfortunately, Biden for a while did not actually support the TRIPS waiver. And we got well into some very bad times, specifically the Delta variant in India with a 4% vaccination rate in March of 2021. And and why did the WTO say no? Because you really do need support from the world community. It is the World Trade Organization. And fundamentally, it is partially dependent on G9 nations. And eventually, I hope, would hope G20 saying these high-income nations supporting the TRIPS waiver. Because obviously, these nations are getting pushback from the companies saying, don't do it. And they did. And so it's almost like the World Trade Organization cannot work in isolation from these high-income countries. And they weren't getting support from high-income countries, neither Germany, which was the place of BioNTech, nor the United States, which was the place of Moderna. Um, What do you think of the argument that if there are taxpayer dollars involved and there are private financings of drug development, that the initial benefits, the initial harvesting of those gains should stay within the country that financed it. I think that was typically an argument that came out, that the politicians and private companies wanted to make sure their own citizens were fully inoculated before any shipments went to other countries. You know, what I would say about that is that that in general could make sense to me if this wasn't a highly transmissible respiratory virus where high rates of transmission occurring in other countries with low rates of immunity will affect us here in the United States. The Delta variant, though we do not know exactly where it emerged, was first identified in India. The Omicron variant, we don't know where it emerged, was first identified in South Africa. How interesting that it was those two countries who were begging the WTO for vaccines. And the reason that I say that is we are all affected by global health. That's the thing about a highly infectious pathogen, that it mattered that India had a terrible Delta variant surge because it came here and we quickly also had a bad Delta variant surge in places who were undervaccinated in the United States, places with low rates of vaccine. We had plenty of vaccines. It was just that some states didn't have the uptake that we were hoping for by the time Delta hit our shores in July of 2021. And it affected us. It affected our hospitals. And it may not have if we had thought together as a global health community. What happens there matters here in the United States. 
Viruses don't carry passports or think about borders, do they? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we it's do. Different. Maybe we should think about what you just said for rheumatologic diseases, cancer diseases, things that are not highly infectious and contagious. This was a global health emergency. I think what happened in it was tragic in terms of global vaccine equity. And, and pandemics remind us, at least when it comes to public health, but I think there's other areas in which it's true too, that we are authentically a global community that we can't really turn our backs on one another, can we? Yes, right now, good example. The WHO on January 5th of 2023 had a press conference where they looked like they wanted to declare this pandemic over because things were going so much better in every country but China. And because things are not going that well in China right now, we are linked to China. We are absolutely linked. Everyone is. And the global pandemic will not be declared over until China can get through what they're getting through right now with lower rates of vaccination than they likely should have had before they massively opened up. Moderna is, is interesting in that context because they made a patent pledge and they said that in the early stages of the pandemic that they essentially wouldn't enforce what they believe to be their legal patent claims against manufacturers in developing countries. If other local manufacturers decided to use Moderna's technology to solve these viral problems in their own country, Moderna would essentially look the other way. And that's a pretty unusual and generous, publicly spirited posture to take, isn't it? Yes, the day that happened, there was a lot of love <laughs> towards Moderna. So you can say something, but if you don't follow through, it's not like scientists, you know, won't remember this in the next pandemic. And you want to really follow through on, I wouldn't, I, to me, it doesn't even totally feel like generosity in the sense that I think in terms of profit, Moderna really made a profit and will continue to make profit. I think it was more something that was holding true to their obligations that they got a lot of external funding and we were in the middle of a global health emergency and they should have played ball more. So did you not take their patent pledge at face value? Do you think it was a, a way to allay criticism or was it a legitimate positive step forward? You know, I have to say that everyone was writing around that time. I wrote a piece in Time magazine in March of 2021 when I was watching what was going on in India that said, please step up both the governments of G9 to work on the TRIPS waiver and also Moderna and Pfizer. And then I wrote a couple of pieces in other places at that time. So they were getting a lot of pressure around that time because it became revealed that letter that they had written to President Biden, where they said, please ignore what India and South Africa asked for. We don't think that's good in terms of profit. That letter had been, you know, I don't know what happened, but it somehow got in the public space. So people were looking to Moderna. So when they said that, I think everyone was very happy, but we're now what we're almost two years past that point of March 2021. And we don't have these, you know, sort of freely being made in other countries for distribution. So the vaccines that we're getting in some of our countries right now, China doesn't have massive production of mRNA vaccine. It has a vaccine, but it doesn't have the same vaccine. And this vaccine works well. It really works well. You know, in the same way that patents and the bottom line get in the way of developing countries getting access to drugs they need, even in developed countries, the pricing sometimes can be so exorbitant that certain drugs can be out of reach of citizens, even in the countries in which the drugs are developed. And pharma companies have often said, our pricing is a reflection of the time it takes to develop a drug and the massive investment we need to make into that development. But they're also not very transparent about actually 
sort of showing their costs and showing their processes to substantiate that completely, are they? Yes. So, for example, there was a statement made that these mRNA vaccines are really hard to make. But the Serum Institute in India had already claimed in October 2020 when they wrote the WTO, we don't think they're very hard and we really have the technology, we have the institute, we have the factory, we can do it. And so there's this statement made that they're so hard, but you really need the recipe. You really need the <laughs> patent to look at so you can see if they can make it. That was an excuse used for antiretroviral therapy. But once India started making antiretroviral therapy for the world, the trajectory of the world changed in HIV. Oh, by the way, India violated the patent and they sort of the drug companies looked the other way. Why did they look the other way in that case? Because, again, the international pressure was so loud at that point. Sub-Saharan Africa is really always been the epicenter of the HIV pandemic. This very visible meeting had just happened, the International AIDS Conference in Durban, and it just would have looked so bad for the pharmaceutical companies to sue South Africa for buying these drugs from India or to sue India to making the drugs that they just stopped complaining. And uh, and these drugs, they were part of the PEPFAR program, the PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief formed under President Bush. And he and the PEPFAR program going forward really led to a mass dissemination of antiretroviral therapy worldwide. But it was using the cheap drugs made in India. So how do we resolve this collision between innovation and avarice? Is it resolvable? Is it a collision that ultimately has positive results? Is it one in your mind that is always going to be a little bit scarred? How do you think about that? I always think of that whatever you do comes back to you. I mean, we we say this in human beings, like if we behave unselfishly, you know, a lot of that kind of rewards come back to you. I have no doubt that companies in the middle of a global health emergency, because there are high income nations, will always make profit if they make something innovative to combat that pandemic. I think they will always make profit. But what will come back to them is a incredible feeling of goodwill, of more scientific input, of more money into their company, of more interactions with the federal government if they behave more nobly and with less avarice to try to help control the epidemic and to provide provide global vaccine equity to these medications. So good example, the two antivirals, Molnupiravir and Paxlovid, those companies, of which one was Pfizer and one was Merck, immediately when they made their antiviral products, worked with the medicines patent pool and said, we're going to make these available in low-income countries. We're going to give our formula out. We're not even going to do what Moderna did on the public stage and make it look like we're not going to give out the formula for these to be made in low-resource settings. And they did that, and there was an incredible amount of goodwill towards them. And then what does that do? That makes the federal government buy a lot of Paxlovid doses for the U.S. population. They made a lot of money. It's always going to come back to them, I think. And so try to behave well. Before the public shaming occurs. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But Pfizer came out looking good in terms of Paxlovid. So tell me, what have you learned from watching Moderna and some of the other vaccine wizards during the COVID crisis? You know, you're the smarty. I said at the top of the show, I'm not a scientist. You're the scientist. So probably there's less in all of this that is a learning moment for you. But I was really curious about anything that you might have learned from all of this. I mean, one thing I have learned is just to go back to something we said at the beginning. I think this technology 
whatever you think about it, because of course there's been misinformation and there's been some kind of back and forth about the safety of these vaccines. I actually think that these vaccines have been miraculous. And the reason they've been so miraculous is they make really high levels of protein. So when I think about older people, immunocompromised individuals, like the patients I take care of living with HIV, I want them to have the mRNA vaccine because such high levels of protein are made, such a vigorous immune response is made that though we can't prevent all infections, severe disease, there's an incredible protection against severe disease. So this is not a technology we should ever, you know, not use. I think it's going to be used in in the future if we have a new pathogen. So what I would say is that don't give up on the mRNA technology. Don't give up on these companies. Moderna should, I hope, start working better together with both the legacy of what happened from the NIH. Now, Dr. Graham has actually retired. He wanted to retire before, but he was in the middle of the pandemic. So he has now retired. The NIH should always be your friend if you are a innovative drug company. So work well with the NIH. Drop the patent against Pfizer. These are vaccines that have been, again, in existence for a while. And it was not like Pfizer went to Moderna and stole anything. And that will also look good if they drop that. And express some generosity. So express some degree of willingness in terms of low resource countries being able to make these, India and South Africa. And then the next pandemic, we're going to turn to Moderna. Well, I could keep talking to you for another hour. This was a great conversation. Thanks for joining us today, Monica. Thank you so much. Really great questions and conversation and really relevant for the future. You can follow Dr. Monica Gandhi on Twitter at MonicaGandhi9. And you can pre-order her book, Endemic, a post-pandemic playbook, which will be published this summer. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that pharmaceutical companies can be innovative and great, and they can also be good if they just put the bottom line aside for a little while sometimes, especially during a public health emergency. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Hendrickson, and we had editing help from Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nitza, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.